All right, so we are in the last week of a super short series entitled Consumed, The Endless Demands of the Monsters We Worship. Right after this, we'll be getting back to our long journey through the Gospel of Matthew. We've been going through it verse by verse. We've been in there for a long time and we'll continue to be there for some time, but every so often we'll take some short breaks like this along the way. Now in this series, we've been talking about idolatry and the nature of idols. And today is going to be pretty straightforward. We're going to cover one last area. Um, but before we do that, a little bit review so we, we're, we're sure that we have kind of all the, the content we've been going o- over the last several weeks. So first, we've been using this definition for what is an idol by pastor and author Tim Keller. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. And we've illustrated that idea with something we've called this hierarchy of values represented by a triangle. And in this triangle, you are to imagine all of your values inside of it. At the top of the triangle are the things that you value chiefly, the things that matter most to you. And as you go down the triangle, there are things that you value less and less. For a Christian, at the top of your hierarchy of values should be God. And anything that usurps his position at the top of the hierarchy is by definition an idol. It's by definition idolatry. Now we've talked about the sinister nature of idols in that oftentimes we get the idea that idols are bad things that you, know, you clearly see taking over your life and clearly taking over that top spot where God belongs. But the sinister thing is that idols can often be good things things that you end up somehow loving more than you love God. And we've used the example of children because it's a controversial one. Because like, no, I love my kids more than anything. And you're like, who would, who would say that's a bad thing? Well, God himself actually says that. And it's not necessarily um, because he's just this, this, this selfish God or something like that by no means. It's he is first most worthy of all praise and glory, but then two, it's actually for your good and your children's good. Because if you put your children at the top of your hierarchy of values, they are essentially essentially functioning as your God. And your children cannot bear the weight of being your Lord and personal Savior. You will damage that relationship. If your children function as God in your life, they will not be able to bear the weight. In fact, anything you put into that top category cannot bear the weight of being God. Only God can bear the weight of being God. The other thing that the hierarchy demonstrates is that um, everyone, in some sense, is religious. I know it's, it's very common in our culture, and maybe some of you here today, you might say something along the lines, I'm not a very religious person. Re- religion deals with, with values, And so whatever is at the top of your hierarchy of values is essentially, by definition, functioning as God in your life. And make no mistake about it, whatever's at the top, you are going to set up habits, rituals, and practices to establish that thing at top and keep it there. It's just the way we are. Human beings are hopelessly religious. We assign certain values to things, and we put something at the top, and then we structure our lives around it. That's the heart of it. Now, We've been looking at a quote by a church, early church theologian by the name of Augustine, because it's important to note that it is not necessarily wrong to love things immensely, because that's the confusion. You can say, you got to love God with all your heart, and then everything else is, you know, just doesn't matter. No, 
The idea is that you love God chiefly, and in loving God chiefly, you are able to love things in their right order. And in fact, loving God increases your capacity to love other things that you desire to love more. So Augustine says it like this, but living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things to love things, that is to say, in the right order, so that you do not love what is not to be loved or fail to love what is to be loved or have a greater love for what should be loved less or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more or a lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. That's a long way of saying everything in right order, everything in their right place. God at the top and everything structured and orbiting around him. Now today, we're going to tackle the last concept, last set of ideas. Sex, love, relationships, romance, lust, all that kind of packaged together. And this is something um, extremely important because uh, this, this issue is extremely pronounced in our culture. See, what's happened is in the modern Western world, is we've removed the idea and concept of God. I mean, not in the church, but generally speaking culture, it's like we've pushed God to, to the side. And so we've put other things then in the place of him in that hierarchy of values. And so what happens is we frantically begin to look for things that could replace that, that can give our life ultimate meaning. Because human beings are hopelessly religious, so we have to have meaning, we have to have purpose. So what does our culture generally do with the absence of God? We elevate specific things to give our lives meaning and purpose. And usually, not all the time, but a lot of the times in our culture, it's love, romance, sex, etc. This really stood out to me. It's now, I actually looked it up this morning because I was like, I was going to say, this was just a few years ago, but I've now reached the age where you say just a few years ago, and it was more than a decade ago. So I, I, I recently, 13 years ago, uh, heard a song uh, by Katy Perry, a pop star, and it was called E.T. E.T. was standing for extraterrestrial, and some of you might know it. But essentially, the song is about having a type of love that's otherworldly, hence the title Extraterrestrial E.T. And it was fascinating to me because all the language was language of transcendence and a love that is beyond our world that is from another world. And it, I'm going, oh, I get it. In the absence of some type of transcendent love, a love of ultimate purpose and value, we go trying to put that into whatever place we can. So now she in the song isn't looking for just a normal type of love. It literally is like a transcendent love, a love from another world. I went like, so you're looking for an otherworldly type of love. I know about that. I know about that. See, you can tell a lot about a culture by their art, what their art focuses on, what the songs are talking about again and again and again. This is particularly pronounced um, in a time period. A lot of scholars look back at this because it's, it's, it's incredibly indicative of the, of the point. If you go back 700 years from the time of Christ to the ancient Assyrian Empire and you were to examine their art, it's all violence, like all of the time. 
It's, it's pictures and paintings and statues of war, conquest, power, destruction, and killing. Like again and again and again, nonstop. And uh, it's one of those things that when, you know, you set up a new house or something, you, you build a new house and you're wealthy in the ancient Assyrian Empire, you ask your wife, you know, what should we put on the wall? How about some pictures of me killing some people? <laughs> and well, what about the kids' room? Let them know their dad's a killer. More pictures of killing. And the kings, when they set up palaces, it would just be art piece after art piece of horrific violence and not just simple killing. I mean, there's, there's whole depictions of torture scenes and, and making your enemies suffer longer. It's, it's, it's incredible. But when you want to look at, into that culture, sort of the collective conscience of that people, you look at their art and you see something revealed. Violence, power, destruction. Okay, now do the same thing to our culture. What are we singing about? What are we talking about? What is pop song after pop song about? And I have a quick exercise to demonstrate this. And I don't want to, I'm going to move fast. Because for some, some of you, it's going to take you back. The nostalgia will be overwhelming. <coughs> You're going to remember high school prom. So what I want to do is just show you briefly <clears throat> the, a couple samples of the beginning of, of the last few decades. And look at what Billboard uh, charts said was the number one pop song of that year. And you're going to see a common theme, very common theme. Okay, so get in the DeLorean. We're going back to the early 80s. 1980, biggest pop song of the year, Call Me Blondie. Now, for those who don't know what it is, that's fine. Um, it's not just about talking on the phone. The phone call leads somewhere, okay? Uh, 1981, I don't know who this is. Bet Davy Eyes or by Kim Carnes. I don't know who either of those people are, but I looked up the lyrics. Guess what it's about? Guess what it's about? I'm not born yet. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm about to debut here. Seriously, I'm coming up in two years. The whole front row's upset at me. Come on. No, I'm not, I'm not like being, oh, oh, I don't know anything about this. But I do know this song. 1982 Physical. Olivia Newton-John. Okay, so let's flash forward. The 80s, condemned. 90s. 1991, biggest song, Everything I Do, Brian Adams. Remember this song? It was off the soundtrack to the greatest of all the Robin Hood movies. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, starring Kevin Costner. Okay, next song, 1992, End of the Road, Boys to Men. Classic R&B song. It's about breaking up and getting back together. And you want to know how they initiate getting back together in that song? Okay, you get the idea. By the way, that broke Elvis Presley's record for it made 14 weeks on Billboard's number one slot. So it was the longest number one hit leading up to that time. A few years later, Boys to Men's record would be broken, though. Do you know who it was broken by? Boys to Men, with another hit single called I'll Make Love to You. It broke that, that record. 1993, I Will Always Love You, Whitney Houston. 2002, we're going to the worst of all the decades and all the music. How You Remind Me? About a dysfunctional relationship. 2003, in the club, 50 Cent. It's not just about having a good time dancing in the club. 2004, yeah, Usher, you can guess what that song's about. 2005, We Belong Together. See, even when it's wholesome, you understand, 
It's still romance and relationship. That's what we're singing about. This is our hymn book. This is the modern world's collective hymn book. This is what we sing again and again and again. And I went way back in time just because I know there'd be some people who were like, in my day, you know, we were class acts. We all sang from the Christian hymn book and worshiped the Lord all day long. 1946, Prisoner of Love, Perry Como. 1957, All Shook Up. What's the next line? I'm in love. 1964, I want to hold your hand, The Beatles. 1977, Tonight's the Night, Rod Stewart. Okay, so a quick sampling of all the biggest songs from each year clearly reveals, reveals a theme and pattern, right? What are we singing about again and again and again and again? Love, romance, sex, relationships. Now, what you have to understand and what most of us probably intuitively know, that love and romance, that's, that's not a bad thing. Those are good things. And in fact, that, those elements are inserted into the created order by God himself to serve a good purpose. But what's happened is they get distorted and twisted and manipulated, and then our lives get incredibly out of order. And in the hierarchy of values, we then make these things that ought to be placed lower ascend to the top spot, and they essentially function as gods in our life. So what I briefly want to do is show you how God put these things in place for a reason, how they became corrupted, and what is the effect of that. In order to do that, we go all the way back to Genesis. And this is something we've talked about many, many times here at this church, so it'll be a review for many of you, but if you're new, Hopefully, it brings some understanding to something taking place in Genesis. So when you look at creation, you look at the creation days in Genesis, God creates day after day after day. And in each consecutive day, he inserts a pair. And the pair um, are opposites. They're, they're like completely opposite. So you have light and dark, day and night. They're opposites, but they are not at odds with each other. So the opposites in the pair, they're not in friction or intention. In fact, they uniquely complement each other. We call them functionally different equal opposites. And on each day, you get a different pair, a different set of functionally different equal opposites. Light, dark, day, night, sun, moon, water, land, fish, birds. So you see how they're, in one way, they're completely different. They're opposites each day. But it's not opposites at odds. They are meant to come together and form a complete unit. Each one has a particular beauty. So, for example, sometimes you might be at the beach at the right time, right? And you see the sun setting. And there's that part where it's just got that little bit of sun over the waves, and it's so beautiful. It's like, you know, you got three minutes before it disappears. And there's this particular beauty and glory that the sun has as it's setting behind the ocean. And you want that moment to last, but in a few short moments, it's gone. And you might say, well, that's the end of it. But that's not, right? Because if you're in the right place at the right time, the right day, a different beauty with a particular glory arises. And if you're far away from the city and the time is right, there's a beautiful moon, the counterpart, the greater and lesser light. They are functionally different but they are equal opposites, and together they form our 24-hour kind of day. And that pattern is repeated. Water, land, it's even repeated when now there's animals in the air, and then there's animals in the water, the fish, 
Now, as a reader in Genesis, you are supposed to be aware of this. This is the design pattern that you're, you're following. But then on the last day, the pattern of functionally different equal opposites gets interrupted. And in Genesis 2, it sort of zooms in on that day, and it says, and then God made this guy. He made a man. And then God says, it is not good for man to be alone, right? Now, every other day, what has God said? Good, good. This day, good. Salmon are in the ocean, good. It's all great. Then a human, a man, not good because he's alone. Which, by the way, we can talk about for hours because there's all kinds of theological implications of that that we often miss. Because is Adam technically alone? God looks down and sees Adam and says, not good that man should be alone. Who's with Adam in the garden? God himself. Now, briefly, there is something that we say that is true in some sense, but can be incredibly misleading in another sense. In the Christian world, when people are suffering and going through difficult things, we might say something along the lines of, well, just hold on to God. God is all you need. Okay, there's a version of that that is, it is true. But you have to understand that God mediates his goodness through other things in the created order. So you experience the goodness of God in other things. And so in the garden, man is walking with God before sin. There was no sin separation, and God still looks down and says, no, this isn't good because he needs someone like him. He needs his functionally different equal opposite. And so, yes, all you need is God, but God reveals his love in many ways, including through other human beings. This is why one of the most horrible things you can experience is loneliness, right? This is why one of the most horrendous things people do to other human beings in cases of, of torture or prisoners of war is isolation. To cut someone off from other human beings is horrific. And so God says, you need another human. And he creates the functionally different equal opposite, two people made in the image of God. And now God says, now this is good. Now this is good. And then there's sort of this like first, what people call like the first wedding scene. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So there is a, a physical sexual union that takes place when the man and the woman come together. And although the word says one flesh, it's more than just a physical thing. It is an emotional and spiritual bringing together of two people. And this is why when that is disrupted, it can be so painful. And so I don't bring this up to bring up old hurts and wounds, but many of us know that like when there was a, a marriage and a one flesh union and that falls apart, it is literally feels like the tearing apart of your very being. It's a tearing apart of the one flesh union. God's design was that the functionally different equal opposites would come together and form this one flesh union and it would be lifelong. Now there's all kinds of things in this fallen, broken world that disrupt that. Nevertheless, the pattern is made clear in Genesis. And what you see is that God designed us to be in relationship with him. 
We are to be with God, and we can never be satisfied without Him. But He also gave us human relationships, and we need those human relationships. But He also gives us a pattern and design for how we ought to behave with those human relationships. So far, so good, right? Garden, Adam and Eve, everything's going great. Then the bad stuff. Now, in this story, you're from, if you're familiar with it, a serpent figure is introduced, and he tells Eve, did God really say? And that question, did God really say, isn't applying to their sexual ethic or anything like that. It's actually applying to a, a command of God, a, true, a tree, a fruit that's forbidden, a tree of knowledge of good and evil, a tree of life, and it's this, this whole giant story that sets the Bible in motion. However, what I want you to realize is that question, did God really say, is something that not only happens in the biblical narrative, but it is something that happens again and again and again and again. We mentioned this on Easter if you were here. Remember, there are some stories that are so true that they not only happen to have happened, but they are always happening. They are continuing to happen. So in the Tower of Babel story, there's this idea of man wanting to ascend, to bring God down to his level. That's not something that just happened. It always happens. And the example we used, if you remember, was that of the story of King David. So uh, King David, great guy, starts off good, acquires wealth and success, and what happens? Takes his eye off the Lord, takes his eye off the ball, commits adultery, ends up murdering people. It's a horrific scene. So there's, there's a story of a good king who has so much success and wealth that he takes his eye off the Lord and he falls. Okay, that happened historically with King David. But that same thing, that the narrative pattern and structure happens again and again and again, right? Because isn't one of the lessons of history that oftentimes good people start off with good intentions and then acquire so much wealth and power and success that they take their eye off the ball and corruption sets in? So that story happened, but it happens again and again. How long did it take in the biblical narrative for it to happen again? <clears throat> what happened with David's son? Solomon. Good guy, right? Acquires wealth and success, and then the fall. Solomon has some sons. Guess what happened to them? Oh, and by the way, who did King David get the throne from? Saul. Wait a second. If you're familiar with the biblical story, that pattern repeats itself again and again and again. And likewise, a pattern plays throughout human history. And it's where someone says to someone else, did God really say that? Come on. You know, it, it'd be good for you to decide what's right and wrong in your own eyes. Why don't you have enlightened lies? You, you can be like God. Did God really say this? And so the temptation for humans is to disregard what God has designed and set up and then go a different direction. You say, did God really say it? I don't know. And so with Eve, what does she do? Eats the fruit. Now what's happened collectively and culturally, not only in our time period, but all throughout history, is people will look at the relationships that God designed for human beings to be in relationship with Him, to be in relationship with others, and rather than kind of follow and live within the design pattern that He created for our flourishing, we sort of disregard that and go different directions. 
And then what does the Scripture say happens? And we looked at this in the past briefly, but in the book of Romans, it's pretty heavy because Paul sets up this idea that if you look out at the world, you can see certain things about God. You can know certain things about God. You're not going to know everything there is to know about God. You're not going to know that Jesus came and died on a cross for your sins, but you will see essentially that there are some things to know about God. But rather than acknowledge what is to be known about God, human beings disregard that and go the other direction. And then in that section of Scripture, this is the conclusion. Like, what happens when human beings disregard the will of God? Paul says, Therefore God gave them up in their lust of their own hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now follow this. Like, what is the consequence? What is the punishment of disregarding God's law, His ethics, His design? One of the consequences is God actually just gives you what you want. You're lusting after all these things. Have them. Go for it. You're handed over to it. And this is sort of the state we find ourselves in today. To quote another love song, you know, you might as well face it, you're addicted to love. But we're not addicted to good love. We're addicted to terrible loves. And it manifests in a thousand different ways. For some of us, it's, it's jumping from one broken relationship to another, just trying to feel valued and, and accepted. And we're willing to be treated poorly. We're really willing to get into relationships that we know we shouldn't be in, but we go from one thing to another. And it's like we're addicted to it. And some of you know this intimately because you've tried to break the cycle. You've tried to like not live in that world, but you just go back to it again and again. But you're addicted to it. <clears throat> or for others, it might be pornography usage which is ex- like extremely devastating on a thousand different levels. And it's one of those things that like the majority of us know we shouldn't be doing this, but yet we continue to go back to it. And so there's all these different type of corrupted loves, fragmented, broken relationships that we're participating in. And this isn't just like a few of us, so it's like, because whenever there's sermons like this, people going, oh man, pastor's directly talking to me. If you feel that way, great. Um, I'm happy. Um, the, the, the stats on pornography usage are clear. I mean, this is widespread. It's, it's everywhere. And then you throw in the broken relationships and, and the hurting marriages. And for those of us who make uh, our spouse a God in our life, they, they function as our Savior. Like, we're all like in this. Like our culture as a whole is experiencing broken, fragmented relationships and romance and sexual experiences. It's a bad, we're in a bad place. In week one, we talked about, it gets gets worse, by the way. Um, In week one, we talked about how idols will, will look for pain points and hurts and wounds in your life. 
and then the, th- that's how they'll get into your heart. But when, when an idol finds a pain point, it functions like, like a barbed hook. And for those of you who aren't into fishing, uh, the barbed hook is a, a hook that has another point going backwards so that if that goes into your flesh, if you immediately try to take that barbed hook out, do you know what happens? If you fish, you know what happens. It's like, oh, you can't pull it out because it hurts because it's going to tear out the whole flesh. So if you have a barbed hook, there's only two ways to get it out, right? You either pull really hard and let it tear out all the flesh, or the only way out is through. You push that thing all the way through to the end of the other side. And so idolatry in our lives are already, is already strong, but when it hooks onto a pain point, it becomes incredibly difficult to break. So remember, we gave the example of a, a young man who is climbing the ladder of success, the corporate ladder of success at work. And he's making more money, and he's being more successful, and he's working longer hours, and he's working harder, and he's climbing. Things are great. Meanwhile, his wife and kids at home are rarely seen dad, rarely seen husband. And the more he does that, the less time he has with his wife and kids. And then at a certain point, his kids even begin to wonder, does dad love his job more than he does love me? And so essentially, I mean, this is the religious nature and structure of it. That man is literally sacrificing his wife and children on the altar of success. In order to get the success and the money and the wealth, you are sacrificing the relationship you have with your wife and kids in order to, in order to obtain it. Okay, so it's like bad, idolatry, what's wrong with this guy, right? But then... Let's take a further look into this person's life and see that there might be a pain point. So imagine this gentleman grew up extremely poor. And this may be some of your stories. You grew up so poor that the only clothes you ever wore were old clothes that your older brother and sister gave you. Hand-me-downs, and they had holes in them. And you had to wear shoes two sizes big. And everyone at school knew about it. You were the kid with the old clothes, and so you were made fun of, you were mocked. And at a certain point in junior high and high school, you told yourself, I will never let my kids live the life that I lived. The, my, the, kid, the life that my kids have will be better than mine. They won't have to be made fun of for wearing old clothes at school. And so you work really hard and you get the good job. And so you start climbing the, the ladder. You start making decent money, right? And then what do you do? Your kids go to school for the first time. They have nice clothes. They're not going to be made fun of like you were. But then, um, you know, they need to be dropped off by mom in a nice car. Because we had to walk to school, and I'm not going to have my wife have to walk our kids to school to get the nice car. And then you get the nice house. But then you keep succeeding, and now you've worked your way up in the corporation that you look around, and you're in a whole new, like, economic bracket. And you used to be good with the same house and car and clothes when you were down here because it was better than everyone else. But now you're in another tier and you look around, well, these guys' houses are way better than mine. Repeat the cycle. And so what happens is, is that idol of needing to be successful and make money found its way in through a pain point. And now when you try to deal with it, it's extremely painful. See, the, the idols are monsters. They are false gods that will always demand more and more and more of you. You don't just get to stop 
the gods have always demanded more sacrifice, more from you. And so it didn't end with the nice clothes. It had to be the nice car and the nice house. And then when you got that, it had to repeat. And, you, you know, you told yourself, I'm only looking at things online that I shouldn't. It's only once a month. It's not a big deal. And then you're looking at that stuff online once a week. And you say, it's not a big deal. It's only once a week. There's all kinds of people who are around me. They're looking at stuff every single day. I'm just once a week. And then it's every week. And then it doesn't do what it used to. So you've got to up the severity of the content. It's more and more and more. And it enslaves you. Or you're in a, in a dating relationship and you're a Christian couple and you draw a line. You say, like, this is how, this is, we're going to honor God with our relationship and we are going to have physical boundaries in this relationship. We're not going to cross the line. And then what happens, you cross the line. And you tell yourself, oh, we, that line was, let's move the line over here. And then you keep doing more and more and then you're moving the line. And then you're just having premarital sex all the time. And then you start telling yourself things like, well, we're married in our hearts, so it doesn't matter. This is, this is like our human nature, right? We move the line, and we do more and more, and the idols just, they're getting us stronger. Their grip's tighter. They have more hooks in us. And it's even worse news than that. Because, as we've just said, the more pains and hurts you have, the more weak points you have, the more vulnerabilities you have. Now, here's the thing. As we collectively, as a culture, have disregarded God's ethics and plans and his design patterns, we now have the manifestation of countless different ways we're being hurt through broken relationships, abusive relationships, through parents abandoning their children, through extramarital affairs. It's just like hurt and pain all over the place. And I could tell you, like, in this room, like the collective hurt and pain over human, broken human relationships would be so heavy we couldn't even share it without all of us just breaking down. And so it's like we're vulnerable in all these other spots. That's a very scary thing. It's very difficult. So what are we to do? Breathe now. There's something we have to understand. It comes to us from Augustine, the same church theologian that said we have to have rightly order the loves in our lives. He says this, Thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. One of the first things you could begin to realize is that me chasing after all these other things is not rooted in something that was inherently broken, but it's rooted in something that was good, but along the way became corrupted. We all have desires. We all have affections and appetites for different things. The problem is, as it, it just even if you're a Christian, you live in a culture that has removed the idea and concept of God, and it's telling you every single day through its stories, its music, its commercials, its ads, that the way to meaning and purpose and happiness is to acquire this thing. And then you elevate that to something that will give you more meaning and purpose. And it betrays you every single time. 
So, recognize that we all have different desires and appetites. God created these things. We, we, we have a need for relationship with God. We have a need for relationship with others. We have a need for, for things like food and water. So we all have low desires, mid-desires, and like what we'll call high-ranking desires, Des- different types of desires and appetites. Low desires, again, think about food. Think about it's really hot, and so you drink a glass of cold water. You have a desire to drink that cold water. And when you drink it, what happens on a hot day? Have you ever noticed how good water tastes when you're actually thirsty? It's magical. Or if you're cold, you put on a jacket. That's low-level desires. Then there's like medium-level desires. Think about how you might have a desire to grow up and be married, or to grow up, maybe it's to have a big family. You want to have a big, giant family. Medium-level desires. And all of these desires are good. Then there's high-ranking desires. Traditionally, again, the high-ranking desires that we have as human beings, that was reserved for the category of God and our faith. But that's been removed. The problem is you still have those desires. Even if a culture tells you God isn't real or he can't fill those desires, get that over there. It's in you. You have a longing and appetite and desire for ultimate meaning and purpose. You can't live without it. It's inside of you. And so what do we do? We then try to fill, we try to satisfy these high-ranking desires and affections with things lower on the ladder. We bring them up higher. So rather than seek out relationship with God, we seek out relationship with other things. But those things can't bear the weight of what God could. And so we elevate all sorts of things. Now here is the, the, the scary and sinister thing of it all. The, the things on the low end, like low-level objects, they actually do satisfy you in a way, right? So when you're hungry and you eat food, guess what it does? It makes you feel better. It's awesome. Got a caffeine headache? Have an energy drink? Have some coffee? I'm better. And so it temporarily eases the pain, right? It temporarily satisfies something which is great and good in the right order. But what happens is, is then you begin to rely on this thing all the more anytime there's dip, some t- type of discomfort. You have some issue in your life, you go back to the things that can give you the quick fix. And the scarier thing than that is you're actually rewiring your brain to just seek after the lower level things to get the quick satisfaction. And that could be with pornography, food, alcohol, relationships, sex, whatever it may be but your life will always be out of order and out of place and you'll always be wrestling until you put things in their right place. You were made for God. You were meant to find your rest in Him. And in His goodness, He gave you other ways to experience His goodness. But following the right pattern and the right design... And when you don't do that, things go terribly, terribly wrong. So, this is what I'd like us to do. I'd like us to sort of examine our life 
And although today we are primarily focusing on sex, relationships, love, we've talked about money, greed, uh, power. We've talked about all kinds of different topics the last few weeks. But I just want you to examine your life because this, I'm, I'm telling you, most Americans don't spend time examining their life. We really don't. We just go from one thing to another. One quick fix to another. And by the way, when we don't have any, like, fix around us, what do, what do we have? Dopamine, dopamine, dopamine. We're being, like, trained to seek after these lower things. We need to examine our lives. So take a moment. Sometime this week, today, preferably, and check, when was the last time you did this? Just take 20 minutes to a half hour and reflect on the ordering of your life. Where are your values? What's out of line? What needs to be realigned? What needs to be put in right order? And ask God in that time to reveal and to convict and to empower you to structure things rightly. Now, I can tell you the first step in this, the first and most important step in all of this is to make sure Christ is at top. Christ is on top. He is, he must be the center of gravity at which all things orbit. Nothing else has the solar mass to maintain orbit of everything else in your life. He has to be central and everything else orbiting around that. And then you move down. Are my kids, are my, do my kids know how much I love them? Does my spouse know how much? How am I treating my friends? How is my relationship with something as simple as entertainment? Am I, am I watching too many movies? Because I'd rather watch movies than think about the big issues in my life. See how this works. And the first and foremost thing is to put Christ at top. Now this sometimes can be difficult because I'm like, oh, I know I should love God more. And what you have to do is you have to, to remind yourself of like just how worthy of love he is. Because we all come from different walks and different backgrounds and have different hurts and pains, but here's the thing that unites us. Even for some of you who you might feel, I'm not worthy of being loved, or some of you who have been hurt so much you never want to um, experience love, I'm just going to stay away from that. Or for some of you who, you know, you have a healthy marriage and things are great and some of you, your marriage is on the rocks and some of you are single, some of you are divorced, some of you are widowed, you lost the, the, the one person on earth you love the most. Like wherever we're at, the Bible says that the followers of Jesus are his bride and he is the true and good and faithful groom. And you must look on him as the faithful husband who never leaves you nor forsakes you. And when you doubt his love for you, you remind yourself of what he did on your behalf. That Christ died for me. Greater love has no man. I will, ne I will never be loved by another human being in the same way that God loves me. And he died for me. And you stir your affections towards him. And you say, Lord, I don't want to forget what you've done because it's real easy to when you're addicted to all these low-level things, right? Lord, let me keep my eyes on you. Let me remember the gospel truth. And so this is why I love taking communion. 
We take communion every week because it forces us as a church to remember that which is most important. So let's stand. Take some time this week to examine your life. And then what I want you to do is once you've examined it and you've seen things that are not in right order, I want you to be brave and tell someone. Confess that to someone else. I'm telling you there is power in telling another human being your struggle. You expose what is in darkness to light. You expose what's going on. You tell someone else and there's power in that. So tell a friend, tell, tell your small group, and if you're here and you're like, I don't have anyone I trust, I don't, write on the cards in the, in, the, in the chairs, on the connect cards, say, I'd like to talk to a pastor and come and talk to one of us. Don't let those things be held in secret. So take time to reflect, time to confess. And then now as the corporate bride of Christ and body of Christ, let us remember what the good king did on our behalf. So when we doubt how much we're loved, when we doubt the love of God, when we doubt if we're worthy or the shame of our past sins come flooding back, our faults and failures, we remember ultimate truth. That God himself said, this is my body broken for you. Don't you ever forget it. Don't you ever forget Christ himself laid down his life on your behalf. When you know and experience the love of God, it changes everything. So today, we remember, God, that you loved us. And then Jesus takes the cup. It's the blood of the new covenant. The Apostle Paul reminds us that when we take this, we are proclaiming the death and resurrection of Jesus until he returns. And so, Lord, we want to be faithful. We want to be faithful. No human being could just magically wake up and rightly order their life. As Christians, we recognize it is through the work of Christ in our lives, through the sanctification of his spirit. And so, Lord, we ask that we rightly order ourselves, we remain faithful, and we do so by the grace of the empowerment of your Holy Spirit in our lives. So empower us, Lord Jesus, to do right. And so, Father, as we turn to worship, may we fix our eyes and affections upon your Son, and in doing so, may you begin the work in us, cleaning up things. Forgive us where we stray and get us on the right path, Lord. You are worthy of our worship. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. May we respond and worship, worship in a fitting way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.